0: I can now hear you, too.
1: Nice. All right. Well, uh, everything in the last couple of minutes is just going to be erased for the record, like um, pictures of Trotsky and uh, Soviet history books. So uh, this can have a nice clean start right now, when I say All right. I'm now joined by Gene Bajelon. How are you doing today, Gene? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing pretty good. Um, Yeah. Busy,
0: but, uh, but good. I can imagine. I see there's a lot of publicity going around with this book. There seems to be a whiff of success with the Hitchens book. So congratulations.
1: Hey, thank you. Yep. So, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to be sold at airport bookstores anytime soon, but the people <laughs> who have read it seem to like it. So I'm uh, I'm happy about that. Uh, so anybody wants to get in the queue to, uh, to ask you a question? Hello? Oh, yeah. Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, no. Gene? Gene? Can you not hear me? Oh, yeah.
0: I can hear you now. Did, did, wait, can you still hear me?
1: The, the last thing I heard before that was hello.
0: Oh, okay. Fair enough. No, I can hear you fine.
1: Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I was just saying, anybody who wants to uh, get in the queue, uh, so uh, they uh, have questions for, uh, for Gene uh, topics are wide open. Just go ahead and do that, and we'll we'll call on you pretty quickly in a minute. But um, but meanwhile, uh, Gene, uh, on the extremely unlikely off chance, there's anybody here who isn't familiar with you. Uh, who are you? Yeah, so my name is Gene Vangeland. I'm an assistant professor of Middle Eastern
0: history at Missouri State University. Um, I am from Britain, uh, although my Father's lineage comes from the great non-state of Kurdistan, so I have uh, uh, Kurdish origins. My mother's from Wales. And uh, I'm currently living in my hometown of Kingston-upon-Hull, so I'm I'm speaking to you from across the Atlantic in the old countries. I'm staying here until June, uh, working remotely, one of the... Uh, one of the positive sides of being a uh, member of the professional managerial class during COVID is remote working, which on some in some ways kind of sucks because you end up doing more work. But in other ways, it does give you a little bit more flexibility to where you can be. So I am visiting my parents with my uh, uh, th- soon-to-be three-year-old son and yes. my three-month-old baby, and we're just busy here doing life administration getting their british citizenship sorted out meeting the grandparents and enjoying the 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 freedom that exists in this country since brexit because of course uh, <laughs> you know you know last time i was in britain was before the great liberation from brussels sure now uh, uh we're in this kind of uh, hazy world of freedom um mm, yeah. it's 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 really lovely all the adverts are always emphasizing that the chickens that you buy at Sainsbury's are British chickens, so <laughs> patriotic chickens, and uh, inflation's crazy. You think you're having it bad in America? Inflation here is bonkers, I have to say. Um, <laughs> I'm, enjo- I'm enjoying the, uh, the freedom inflation that we're nice. getting here, so, so, so it's, quite, it's quite pleasant to be with family. And, um, yeah, just do a bit of reading Doing some uh, stuff with the University of Hull And, you know, just generally taking along with the usual business With uh, our uh, uh, a podcast with uh, Jason Miles and, and Pascal Robert and Cooper Rysnevsky um, uh, This is Revolution, so, uh, yep, we've been doing some work for that But I have not been appearing on the weeknight shows Because I don't want to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to uh, get yelled at
1: uh, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I should say, I mean, no, that all sounds good. I I will say that for myself, I have had more than enough remote teaching for the rest of my life in the last uh, two years. I I am beyond thrilled to finally be done with that for the moment. Uh, so, so Morehouse, where I've been working as an adjunct, uh, started out the semester online because of Omicron, but uh, it... Uh, uh came back in person well uh, a couple weeks ago but I was back in person last week and uh, oh congratulations thank you i i have been beyond thrilled with that it's uh it you know like really one thing i mean this is the first time i've actually been teaching a class in a physical classroom since march 2020 and one thing I've definitely got out of the last two years is that uh, when it's online, teaching has zero appeal to me as an activity. Like it's uh, it, you know, I can I could, it's uh, I mean part of
0: teaching is uh, performing, yeah. I guess, and that's why I think you know many university professors are not necessarily great at being university professors because obviously there's this big emphasis on research, and you can be a wonderful researcher. You can be an innovative thinker, but you can be a terrible, uh, a terrible teacher when you get into the classroom. So, you know, I, I agree. You know, being in the classroom is awesome. There is one of the th- reasons that I teach online quite a bit is because we have a program designed for in-service high school teachers to get graduate credits. And many of these people are in uh, rural districts across Missouri, but also increasingly across the United States. And they just don't have uh, the ability to go take a seated class. So working with older students who are in-service teachers, working online, that's actually quite rewarding because you don't have to do a lot of chasing up. They're very enthusiastic. But when it comes to, you know, 19-year-olds, you know, you need to be in the classroom. You need to grab their attention because, you know, 19 is is legally an adult, but you're still going through that. Transition to being a grown-up. And I think you can, re, you know, engaging with... I think the big losers from uh, from the pandemic in the university system are undergrads because I do think undergraduate classes really do benefit from that face-to-face time. Yeah. Um, whereas graduate classes, you know, face-to-face is great. Discussion is great. But I think there are other things you can do depending on what you're teaching. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, I, I congratulate you for returning to the coalface face of education, uh, you know, getting down the, the, the philosophy mines and uh you know
1: yeah, mining I mean, that, out
0: some dialectics.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I should say that when it's you know, I have taught like non-university online classes in the last, you know, year or so, um, you know, at uh Brannigan University and at the uh, uh, Michael Alberts thing, the School for Social and Cultural Change. And, and those have been good because it's it's um, you know obvious. Well, okay, one like my you know one of my big complaints about online teaching is that it has everything that I hate about teaching, but none of the one I like about it. You know that, and at least at least those non-university things cut out all the stuff that I hate about it. You know, all of the sort of administrative grading, blah 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 blah. Uh, but then, uh, but then also, I mean, if if you are going to be on a Zoom call, you know. You know, you're never going to get the same charge from that that you will from like actually, you know, talking to people in a classroom. But at least if it's one of those non-university things, anybody who's signed up for it is super duper into the subject. So, um, so you know, it, it, it's like I still, I still enjoy doing that. You know, I'm mean, still doing right. that anyway. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's just yeah, like just physically, it's not the same. You know, it's it's like the. Uh, like like just as an experience, like even a really talkative Zoom class. Which if it's just a regular university thing, it's you know, very very far from guaranteed, right? But like right. even even a really talkative Zoom class is just like the actual like feel of doing that. It's like as compared to actually teaching, is like it's 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 been like stepped on and mixed with baby powder a couple times, you know? But yeah, uh, no,
0: I I I can put, I I mean yeah. I think I think you net you now you nailed like a key point there. online for online to work you have to have enthusiastic students. So teaching like a survey course that yeah. kids have to take online that's going to be a chore. And secondly, and I don't think people realize this, even though the inverted well we live in the age of neoliberalism, so let's just call them customers. So uh-huh. you know <laughs> the the customers feel like they're getting an inferior product right. as a, a in an online class. But actually, the amount of work you have to put into preparing for an online class uh-huh. is is a lot more than you would... You know, like at the end of the day, we've all done it. We've all been like, you know what? I didn't prepare my lecturer. I was out getting hammered the night before. No problems. I can totally talk for 45 minutes about the conquest of the new world for my 100-level class, you know? And and sometimes you can, like, kill it with a good lesson if you if you know the topic well. But, you know, there's no... Skimping on the preparation when it comes to online, you have to be on board, and yeah, it's it's. It, I can see how it gets soul destroying. I like working with my graduate students, but I have a harder time working with undergraduates teaching online, simply because of the difficulties in keeping people's attention. You know, yeah, I can't. I can't, I can't try out my material. You know, my good <laughs> jokes. Uh, you know, like uh, you gotta, you gotta trial that. You gotta t- trial out your. Comedy set on the students first, right?
1: Right, yeah, that's what they're there for. Um, well, hey, uh, as I said, if if anybody does want to call in, we can take a call, but uh, but first, uh, what's been uh, you know, what's been going on on uh, this is revolution? You guys have anything good coming up? Yeah, well,
0: we have been uh, Jason has been very much looking into this, uh. Online left and the comparison to the punk scene. This uh-huh. is this big, big bugbear at the moment that he's seeing so many parallels in the way that people are treating uh, 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 podcasters um, and also the way that the culture around it is developing uh, through these parasocial relations, through this mm-hmm. kind of culture mm-hmm. of authenticity, where the actual content is less important. Than the style and the aesthetic. So, for example, you know, with punk, didn't have to be a great musician, but if you looked the part and you shouted loud enough and had passion, <laughs> you know, you could, you could, you could make it. So, being a great musician wasn't the point. And I think there's a there, there is a kind of parallel. There are people, w- whether we like it or not, who are effective communicators, yeah. uh, but are not necessarily, let's just say, the most well-read people. necessarily the most logical people but they exude a certain kind of passion a certain type of authenticity that people latch on to and uh, and it creates a kind of toxic culture which uh, becomes entirely self-referential and ends up eating itself and I think that's one thing we've been we've been uh, looking at at um, this is revolution quite recently Uh, We had our good friend, uh, another interesting episode we had on recently was a friend of the show and a good personal friend of mine, Harun Yilmaz, a historian of the Soviet Union, who he wrote a a brilliant book on uh, the Soviet-era nation-building policies comparing Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. And and we had him on to talk about uh, Russia... About what's going what's going on with Russia he's very skeptical about this whole war scare he made he made some really good points He said well a the Russians uh, are playing a kind of cost benefit uh, 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 sort of uh, they have a kind of cost benefit ratio they have to work out and at the end of the day they're not a particularly wealthy or powerful country right they have to be wary about the kind of reactions so he points out that when the Russians invaded Georgia, They actually went into Georgian territory, but pulled back to the breakaway regions of Ossetia and Abkhazia quite quickly in order to when they could have occupied the country, but in order to avoid a major backlash. And he makes the argument that they took um, the Russians have already taken the Crimea, which is their big strategic interest in Ukraine. They already have an insurgent group inside the Ukraine to act as leverage. Uh, Doing an invasion makes no sense. He says 100,000 troops isn't enough to invade Ukraine. Uh, If you remember, uh, he says, that sounds like a lot of troops, but if you're talking about Ukraine, isn't Iraq or... Yeah, it's a giant country. ...country. And he says, and the cost of that kind of invasion, even if the Russians could win, is going to be very heavy. So his theory is that, his theory is that the Russians are trying to basically get a seat at the table to be reintegrated into the security arrangements that have defined Europe. Russia has been a key element of the European security apparatus, mm-hmm. uh, but since 1991 and the fall of the Warsaw Pact, it's kind of out, been on the outside. So this is a methodology, he, he thinks, that is being used to basically fall, you know, uh, bring the Americans to the table and try and get a more comprehensive uh, deal, but of course, you know it's a risky game that Putin plays because mm-hmm. he's playing a game and he has one bullet, right? <laughs> he has one bullet and he, uh, he has to be extremely careful with it. But he says he's getting it. Uh, you know, it's largely uh, it's largely a leverage game, and he is very skeptical of some of the warmongering or the warfare talk that's going on. He doesn't believe that it's going to happen, but we never know. And then his point on Kazakhstan is that. Uh, he made an interesting point. He says there's two different conspiracies about uh, about Kazakhstan. There's the one in the West, which is from the lefties, where it's like it's all the National Endowment for Democracy, and it's all like the Giga Chad CIA is like orchestrating all these protests. But in Kazakhstan, there's also kind of a parallel where all these protests are really being orchestrated by Moscow as a way for Moscow to get involved. And he says that's all just totally nonsense. He's like, uh, Kazakhstan is a corrupt oligarchy. And I will say, how do we know that? Well, Tony Blair worked for the Kazakhs for a while. So, of course, they're <laughs> a corrupt oligarchy. China has interest there. Russia has interest there. But it's also important to remember, major European and American oil and gas concerns have interest there. So the collapse of the Kazakh state is not something that even Western capital would necessarily be interested in. The protests, he says, are largely just people are pissed off that the fuel prices went up. You know, you've had all this like economic trouble with COVID. You have long term corruption in the country. Fuel prices get uh, hiked up while everybody, the elite uh, are living the high life. And how are you going to explain to people that the oil and gas, uh, the gas has to go up in price in a country that's literally swimming on a sea of natural gas? Right. right? So uh, he says these were organic protests. And of course, factions within the oligarchy try to use it to their own advantage to purge one another and ultimately russia came in as a kind of guarantor guarantor of order and stability uh, and he says that you know people are seeing it as the russians are you know pulling the strings but also the kazakh elite are pulling the strings in a way because they're saying to the russians do you want a big mess on your southern border do you want all these refugees coming to your country you better help us out and russia is playing the role it played in 1848, 1849 in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, marching in to guarantee uh, the reactionary uh, order and the status quo. And China is quite happy for them to do that, because they just care about their Belt and Road. And whatever fantasies Americans might have, American intelligence uh, uh, operators might have, about Central Asia, American influence is very much waning in that region, in both, uh, you know, in a material and ideological sense. So... Yeah, that, is,
1: get that is that is interested. You know that the sort of like you know some people th- were saying that they thought that the you know the protests were like masterminded by by Russia. You know, uh, if I heard that correctly, I mean that's mm-hmm. a that's an interested inversion of the the usual thing that like idiots on the left think, which is that uh, protests in, in any kind of country that is in any way has interests that are like slightly at a right angle to those of the United States, like any, any mass protests or revolutions there are just masterminded by the CIA. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, which is like, um, I always just thought was amazing that people believed the CIA had that kind of power, uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, mobilize people, uh, and, and get them angry. But like, it's, um, You know, I I actually think it's, like, one of the most insidious things that, like, uh, there's this whole vocabulary that's used and like, the dumb kind of anti-imperialism that that has really corrupted the way that people think about this stuff. Like, uh, one of my least favorite things is the way everybody uses regime change now, which completely obscures... The difference between like an imperialist war and like just sending some arms or you know or or between you know <laughs> like or, like like I hate that right you know because it all oh, color
0: color revolution
1: well that that's that's the one I was about to bring up that people will people have this terminology color revolution, which is just a way of sneaking in the idea that any like mass popular revolution that happens in a country that you know that is like has interests that conflict with the interests of U.S. imperialism must therefore have been masterminded by U.S. imperialism. And usually you could find a couple of scraps of evidence that, you know, the, that, like, you know, United States-linked groups are, you know, like... Support, are involved. Are well, involved, not- right, which, which, which of course they are, right? Like, if, I mean, like, that would be bizarre if it weren't true in those situations because the same way that, like... Was the Soviet Union going to be involved and vice versa, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, if, if you're like, it, it would be like, of course, if you're trying to like undermine some place, you know, you're like, be involved and try to steer things in your direction or whatever. But the idea that therefore it's not a real revolution, it's just a CIA plot or whatever is, is so, is so like. Is just maddening, right? Like it, it, teaches people to see this world, the world, in this campused way that is completely incompatible with any kind of like democratic solidarity, and um, and yeah, it's 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 really perverse. So I mean, like it, it is kind of funny to hear the the uh, the vice versa version of it in Kaz- the Kazakhstan case. I, I oh, do. Yeah. Always, I mean.
0: Yeah. You always. You always. You know, there are always these conspiracies. You know about the. You know, I've. You know, in Turkey, in Iraq. When I was there, there were obviously conspiracies that, you know, the Americans were doing things, but there were also conspiracies that other countries uh, were doing things, doing things as well. Russia, it might be behind something or or in Iran. The big one is in Iran, uh, Britain is always, you know, Britain's a you know, kind of declining power and no longer has any real punch anymore. But in Iranian conspiracy theory culture, The British are always behind the Americans. Uh It's actually it's actually the British who are doing things. But I think you, I mean, I think what you're pointing out is extremely important. The way I tend to see it is that there is a kind of inverted American exceptionalism that exists Uh in in some sections of the left, which basically just switches the narrative on its head. Where you have instead of you know America being this good power that has everyone's best interest in uh, in its heart, and even when it does something bad. They did it for noble reasons. You have this evil empire version of uh, of America, where America is not only an evil empire, but it's also super clear and direct on its policy. Which, in a practical terms, that is not the case. We don't tend to see that. Uh, with an American policy, is very destructive. But often there are you know various branches of the American government uh, acting at odds with each other. You know, undermining the uh, like uh, uh, policy directors of one. Wing of the government and the other. And also, it completely takes away any agency from people outside of the United States. Yeah, exactly. The idea that, like, uh, you know, that people in one country might actually protest in their own interests, not because they are provoked by someone. That they might not like Lukashenko or they might not like the the Kazakh government. You know, for like very legitimate economic reasons. No, and exactly.
1: exactly. And like the problem, too, I was going to say with the regime change thing is that the way that the sort of long afterlife of that term on, you know, the dumb part of the anti-imperialist left uh, has taught people to think that like, you know, to to act as if they thought that regime change itself was the bad part. Right. Like that, that's the uh, that like rather than like, yeah, if you have an imperialist war to change, that's a, bad. change a regime, that's the bad part. But like the fact that a regime is changing is, you know, I mean, that's uh like 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 I mean, I would think from a socialist perspective, you know, in, in nearly every case in the world would be, you know, like, you know, your default should be to think that that's good. Right. But like and also just more seriously, the like the problem is that it, it trains people to think. That any time that there's any non-US aligned country where, you know, there is a change of regime uh, that the United States might be supportive of for its own cynical imperialist reasons, that that in itself is a bad thing, which is really a methodology that if you projected it backwards across history, you would have to be against almost literally every revolution that's ever happened anywhere because every yeah. successful revolution exploits some kind of inter-imperialist divisions or, you know, like, of course so, you, you know. go back to, you yeah. go
0: back to you. I mean, I think you've nailed it on the head there. I think, um, so, you know, I'd say a couple of things about this. Firstly, you know, the, not, uh, I can kind of understand why people might shill for the People's Republic of China, right? Because right. at least formally it remains socialist, whether, you know, we debate whether it's a deformed workers' state or whether it's state capitalism or, or whatever. I'm not interested in that. But when you end up sort of uh, telling me, as people have told me, it's like, well, Russia is actually an anti-imperialist country. <laughs> right? It's like, what? This is a capitalist power, right? That, um, you know, it's not it's not as damaging or dangerous to the world as the United States, but it's imperialism. Isn't just a one country doing it to everybody else. It's a system that exists around the world. And, and within imperialist systems, you have like the dominant imperial powers. and Then you have some counter hegemonic imperial powers in the 1920s and 1930s. Those counter hegemonic capitalist imperialist powers, <laughs> German, Japan. Nazi, Nazi Germany and, and yeah, Imperial Japan. And also, you know, like, uh, that you know no and I could understand why black Americans in the 1930s might be cheering on the Japanese sure. right or people in India and Iraq might be cheering on the Nazis uh, because you know from that perspective you know uh, the the war looks very different from you know uh, other perspective but let's be clear about what these things are so there's that kind of weird uh, fetishization of these right-wing uh, imperial, uh, these right-wing capitalist powers, whether you regard them as imperial or not, I don't want to get into that, but yeah. right-wing, a right-wing uh, capitalist power like Russia. And then you have the weird type of argumentation that is used, which is like, if there's a source that agrees with the kind of inverted commas, uh, tanky campus position, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, if it agrees with it, if it's the CIA, they'll say, look, even the Even CIA, CIA admits, admits that this it. is happening. Yeah, That's exactly. And then if it's something if the CIA does they don't like it's like well the CIA is obviously going to lie about things so they have this perverse methodology of argumentation.
1: Yeah, which... heads he, you know heads I win <laughs> tails you lose. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I think it's really bad. I mean, I just I mean my my go to line about this is always to remind people that. You know, if you go back and read Eugene V. Debs's, um, you know, iconic anti-war speech in Canton, Ohio, that got him sent to jail during World War One, uh, you'll notice that he didn't need to throw feel the need to throw in a passage about how actually the Kaiser wasn't so bad. This was all imperialist propaganda. Like, I, I think that you know, I think I think people should be more like uh, more like Debs and less yeah. like you know, less like yeah.
0: the. Uh, uh, has written. Uh, about this as well, you know, like a, a, I think, and, and to come back to a point that you made just now, every revolu- like every revolution, has made taken advantage of inter-imperialist uh, conflict. The Haitian Revolution relied initially on Spanish support uh, against the uh, French. The the Russian Revolution, while well, Lenin was uh, sent back through uh, Germany on a on a train um you know the the chinese uh uh, revolution benefited from you know support external support so we look around the world and we see a lot of you know you know successful revolutions and wars of national liberation often require external support uh to survive we should actually be taking a look at the character uh, of the movement Uh, uh that is you know that is uh you know uh, existing in a particular country rather than um you know like freaking out too much about uh you know freaking out about whether they took this money or not money because uh because if we do that then every revolution is tainted in that way. Yeah,
1: because, exactly. There there so, are no there are no good successful revolutions <laughs> if do if doing that disqualifies you. Uh, you need to look I, at the actual
0: revolution, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh I do want to take Joe and Antonio's uh calls but first I did just wanna use uh you know uh, or abuse host prerogative to to go back to something you said like ten minutes ago because I thought it was interesting. I, I did just want to dwell on it for a minute, which is that um, you know Jason's kind of project of of comparing uh, the online left to the the punk scene and some of the things you said about that. You know, it does also hit me, and I'm not sure how much of a useful analogy there is here, but you know, it, it's just something I was thinking about that. Look, I like plenty of, um, you know, like classic punk kind of music, like as music, uh, you know, like, like, like I, I enjoy, you know, the first couple of Clash albums and whatnot, you know, but like, um, I've always been really annoyed by the sort of official ideology of punk because it's it's it seemed really backwards to me, like the way when people say things like, "Oh, see, this is this wonderful, liberating, democratic thing because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have musical talent, you know that, uh, right?" So, so it opens it up to everybody, you know, because for one thing, like that's always seemed backwards to me because look, it's much easier for somebody who isn't very good at playing the guitar to like apply themselves over the years and get better at playing the guitar than it is for somebody who's like not personally very charismatic to become personally charismatic. Mm -hmm. So like, if anything, right, like actually emphasizing musical talent seems much more democratic and open to me than, uh, than just stripping all that away. So it's nothing but personal charisma (laughs) like that, that, that never made, you know, like that's never made any sense to me at all. And
0: I would add, I would also add to this. Uh, this is something that Jason made me aware of, and you know I think he's he's been reading a lot into the history of this. Is that also punk is a movement that doesn't come out of uh, like the black community or a dispossessed community, but it's, it is a product of the suburbs uh. specifically. So it, it it has this kind of privileged origins anyway. So you know that's a kind of uh, aspect to it as well, which in a way mirrors. Our uh, present day left in that we have a left that is primarily made up of, I guess, people like you and me—people who have had like good fortune, education. Come, you know, come from like solid middle-class backgrounds, uh, and maybe radicalized. But you know, our our experience is not that same of that of the dispossessed masses, even within our own societies, let alone across the world.
1: Yeah, and and also. Well, actually, I mean, I think in my case, maybe a little bit more so, there's a there's a parallel, although, don't get me wrong, I'm very aware that I'm, like, absurdly lucky in the combination of things I get to do for, for work, but I, I guess, I also think that, um, I think the really specific thing that's true about a lot of the, the contemporary left uh, is that very oftentimes it comes, like, I think it has its base in sort of... Equi- economically, without being too dramatic about it, somewhat downwardly mobile, sort of lower PMC, so mm-hmm. um, so people who, you know, maybe have um, you know, like, well, I mean, look, I mean, I will say, like, in, you know, in my case, I mean, like, part of the reason that I wasn't, like, I was, I was sort of interested in doing some of what I'm, I'm doing now, and I wasn't just sort of, like, comfortably settled into some, you know, uh, permanent, uh, you know, some, like, tenure-track sort of sort of job, is that, is that I had, I finished up my PhD at about the time that the, the, like, ripple effects of the global economic meltdown were really starting to rip apart state budgets. And so I ended up sort of bouncing around between, like, one-year things and, like, being an adjunct. And um, and and being in a place where I was like kind of primed to start directing most of my energies elsewhere at a certain point, and and I think that like in some ways I think that that's sort of typical, not that exactly, of course, but like that like people, a lot of people on, on the contemporary American socialist left are people either whose parents had sort of prof- you know professional managerial class kinds of jobs or. You know, and who might not necessarily have them themselves, or who do have them, but like in professions like journalism, for example, or academia, that like are increasingly, you know, like traditional PMC uh, professions that are increasingly unstable and precarious and poorly paid, and and I think that that probably fuels a lot of people's sort of um, interest. In socialist politics, but as you said, they also have like very different life experiences from people who just don't come from this kind of background at all. And and I think in all sorts of ways, we could spend like an hour talking about this, which we're obviously not going to do because we have to take these calls. But like in all sorts of ways, I I think does influence the way that they see politics and the way that they do politics.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would uh, just one little point to add to that quickly. I think you've met, na- you know, you've nailed it. One of my uh, colleagues who wrote on uh, Kurdish nationalism in Turkey makes the argument that in the 1960s, the mainstream Turkish political parties were hi- were encouraging tribal leaders and wealthy merchants in the Kurdish areas to run for parliament. And you have this new class of educated people who had been to the university or at least finished high school. And those guys wanted to run for those positions in the party, but the uh, uh, you know run for parliament and become part of the bureaucracy, but the, the opportunities were shut off to them, so they radicalized and ended up becoming Kurdish nationalists. So yeah, I think this is like a pattern. Obviously, we see. Oh yeah,
1: I can everywhere. definitely see the parallel there. You know, it's like a sort of yeah, it's it's like kind of a kind of a global ethically neutral version of the same phenomenon. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah, not, not, uh, the PMC spurned is a dangerous thing. <laughs> well said. All right. I'll uh, see if we could uh yeah, I don't want to yeah, we could go maybe 10, 12, you know, thirteen more minutes. Uh, I do have commitment at one, but uh let's uh let's get those calls. I want to hear from uh Joe.
2: Hello? Yep. Hey, uh so I guess I kinda wanted to go back to the whole Russia Ukraine thing mm-hmm. a little bit. Because I was watching uh, MSNBC not too long ago. Uh, Not something I make a habit of doing. But they were talking about it like it was this inevitable thing. Um, And like they were making a big deal about it. And I guess like the people around me more or less like either have no idea that's going on or don't care about it. And I'm not sure if it's like a whole thing with like the MSNBC liberal types uh, freaking out about Russia in general or if they're like, if there really is a difference between like liberals and conservatives on this issue or not, you know, or if it's just like a media, like a media figure versus like somebody who doesn't necessarily pay as much attention, uh, sort of thing, you know, like, cause I just feel like normal people don't really care about this very much, but if you turn on the news and like, it's all they care about, you know, I don't know, I don't know if there's a question in there, but yeah.
0: No oh no, that's that's interesting, Jude. Yeah, I was like gonna say that that's a good observation. I think I think uh, the, the mainstream media that you're talking about, MSNBC, those kind of things, those channels are just not the same uh, conversation setters that they were, let's say, 15, 20 years ago. So I think the disconnect between, you know, public discourse on this and what's going on in MSNBC is like probably starker than it has been historically, even though I think, you know, often, even historically, most people probably didn't give a shit about wars that were taking <laughs> place far away. But I think definitely there's a big disconnect there. And secondly, I think, um, yeah, I think there's a great deal of liberal hysteria about Russia. Some of it comes out of the Trump stuff. Some of it, I think, is just viewing, you know, like it's it's something exciting that they can do for, view, for viewing numbers. And thirdly, I think there's this whole, you know... The, the, the bourgeoisie likes to relive its glory days. And there's this whole kind of uh, fantasy of like reliving World War II. Uh, everything is with a World War II analogy. So this like heroic moment in history is being sort of dredged up, you know, uh, uh, and, and and being used for these guys to, to, to imagine that the that, that sort of, cusp of a, a great historical moment and things like that so i think there's a kind of self-delusion in there there's a ratings question in there there's the a whole anti-trump russia 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 thing in there so i think there's a whole combination of the things but i think the the really striking thing about the american and british I'm, I'm seeing this in britain too on the british media is the notion that this war is inevitable and it's about to happen and it's not entirely apparent to me that russia is about to invade uh, the Ukraine. I don't think Russia is doing nice things uh, or, or being friendly or, you know, behaving. They could deal with their neighbors a lot better. But this, I don't know, 100,000 troops sound doesn't sound like a lot of troops to me.
2: Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I live, so I live in the same state that you're from, Gene. And like, I feel like people around here maybe like would be the people other people would expect to be like the most jingoistic about like going to war and stuff like that. But I just, I don't see it. And I don't watch Fox news or anything like that. So I don't know if they, what their line on this is, but I don't know. I, I just don't see people like worked up about this. Yeah.
1: I, I do suspect that Fox news is actually might not be that different from how MSNBC is about it right now. Uh, I don't, I haven't watched any Fox coverage of this. So I don't know. The reason I suspect that is a, um, I'm gonna be real delicate about how I put this. Um, what I can tell from members of my extended family who watch a lot of Fox, uh, you know, like like what what sort of comes through from them, and uh, and B, um, and B, like I just think like a lot of Republican politicians have like switched right back to where they were in like 2012, right? Like it's uh, you know for. Which is, in some ways, like pretty amazing because I, I don't know. Like most people have memory hold this, but in the 2012 election, um, at the debates, like the presidential debates, there was this moment where the uh, moderator asked the candidates like what the greatest threat to the United States was geopolitically, and um, Obama said climate change, and Mitt Romney said Russia. And there was this like you know week of like unrelenting liberal mockery of him for saying russia you know it's like uh you know what, what a silly answer and um uh, and like because this is but like back when obama was president like republicans were always like attacking him uh you know from the right for not being hawkish enough about russia and not being willing to send heavy weaponry to the ukraine and you know et cetera et cetera et cetera uh, I know they want you to say Ukraine, but you know I'm just going to go ahead and say the Ukraine. If uh, uh, the, as as the uh, as the descendant of people who had to get out of the Ukraine in a hurry, you know, I'm i I'm 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 just going to punish them with the definite article. But uh, you know, I think that uh, like that was a pretty common thing, you know, for for uh, for Republicans to attack Obama for being soft on Putin. And then, of course, things sort of reversed themselves when um, Trump was president, and Republicans, a lot of Republicans, spent four years correctly pointed out that liberals had lost their minds with hysteria over Russia. Now it seems like a lot of Republicans are switching right back to like being worried that you know Biden is you know being too soft on Putin. Yeah,
0: that, that's what it comes down to. It just becomes it, it, all of this foreign policy shenanigans just becomes uh, fodder for the domestic culture and political wars that take place so you know everybody's hating on Russia the question is do you think Biden is is, is being a Churchill or a Neville Chamberlain pick your uh, news channel and it will tell you which one they are right
1: yeah yeah no I think so uh, by the way I would uh, there's a Robert Harris uh, who's probably best known for uh, fatherland you know that like if hitler had won the war book uh he has a novel called *Munich*, where you know implicitly in the novel and explicitly in the interviews and stuff he gave about it he he basically makes the case that uh it was um that you know we we see we see the Neville chamberlain case all wrong that you know if uh you know that if if uh if Britain had gone to war in 1938, which is what Hitler wanted them to do, then Hitler would have had a vastly better chance of winning the war, that, like, Chamberlain was being smart and trying to, like, put it off until they had a fighting chance. So I I just wanted to throw that out there, you know, because that that, uh, Chamberlain-Churchill thing is so culturally well-established about, you know, how we see that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. No one cares about the actual history. I mean, I I had an interesting meeting with uh, the head of the history department at, at, at Hull University who works on memory and World War Two, And she's like, nobody talked about World War Two in Britain until like the 19, late 80s, 1990s, because the people who lived through the war didn't want to talk about it. But now it's become like this great cultural t- touchstone uh, with us and everything is always viewed through this lens. Foreign policy is always being strained through a lens of pre-war Appeasement, which is really detrimental to people's brains.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, for sure on that last part. Okay, let's let's get Antonio in and, and, and get his call before we uh, we have to go. Uh,
3: hello, can you hear me? Hello? Yep. Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to first actually express my sympathy for having to teach remotely i haven't uh, fortunately i had to i have to stop teaching a couple of years before the pandemic so i had to do that but it was hard enough to hold attention in person i can only imagine how much how much harder it is to motivate them to pay attention when they
1: have other chats over time so. right thank you yeah yeah no we we, we are uh we are all worse at multitasking than we think we are. Uh, but uh, what uh, what else on your mind, Antonio? Sorry, um, yeah, uh, I
0: guess
3: you guys we were talking earlier about the problem with the with the left, and I, I agree with your assessment about the the problem of having you know people from you know the PMC background uh, leading the movement. But I, I'm wondering if this would be a problem with any sort of a intrinsically ideological party like a or, or sorry idealistic uh approach to party politics where you have you know just the instead of having a, a base of power formed in, in unions and uh, outside of the outside of the electoral process you have you know more pure electoralism if this is sort of uh, how how any sort of socialist movement in the u.s as it currently exists would be doomed to
0: well, I just want to quickly ca- clarify my p- position on this. My objection is not to having, let's say, PMC, PMC adjacent type people, you know, uh, professionals, petty bourgeois, downloadly mobile people uh, in the movement at all. I think, in fact, I think having intellectuals and other groups like that, uh, you know, uh, people who have had time to think about theory and things can be a boon to the movement. I guess my, my issue is that the problem isn't that they're part of a movement, is that they the movement seems to, that sort of wing of activism seems to be entirely divorced from the working class. So, you know, the problem is not having, you know, the Ben Burgesses of the world as part of a socialist movement, but rather the fact that this, the, the socialist movement in America, at least, doesn't seem to have organic links to the working class and it's very much dominated by a political agenda which it may well be legitimate but focuses specifically on perhaps what we might think of as middle class issues like for example uh, you know like getting rid of college debt is definitely uh, an important issue to Americans and should so, be in a political agenda but it should be part of a broader agenda. Uh, 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 as well, because that's not necessarily an issue that is going to be, you know, front and center for working people who don't have that college debt. They'll be like, well, why, 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 why yeah, do I just care about that? So it's not yeah, to it's, reject it's those. It's pretty. Uh,
1: it's pretty revealing that, uh, like. We spend more time talking about college debt than you know medical debt or you know uh, other you know maybe not medical debt you know I mean because I because I guess the healthcare thing is is the sort of overriding you know uh, like short term issue that, that people talk about but like that that's like like one of the only kinds of debt that we ever talk about you know like like I I think I mean I'm, I'm completely with you, Gene. I think that like we should. Um, You know, it's not that we shouldn't advocate, you know, free college and eliminating college debt. We should. But, like, it is it is a little strange that, like, we spend so much more time talking about that than about, like, you know, state supported daycare. Right. Exactly. I think I think so.
0: I think the the agenda, the the left agenda we have, at least in America and Great Britain tends to be uh, more orientated towards these kind of issues.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and I I guess I should say a bit, I I think this is what you were saying earlier, but I I think, you know, the issue is not that there are, you know, people who are like writers and theorists and, you know, uh, perhaps even certain kinds of political leaders uh, are people who, who tend to come from you know, university-educated backgrounds with everything that culturally goes with it. I mean, I think that's probably unavoidable for better or for worse, although, you know, to the extent that, you know, obviously I'm all for, you know, Gramsci and organic intellectuals to the extent that you can get them. But I, I think, um... But, I mean, like, I, I don't... At the very least, that's not the part that's unusual, historically. Right. Right? The, uh... Like, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, you're... you're uh you know, your Lenin's and your Trotsky's, you know, like, like didn't, didn't come from, you know, didn't, uh, didn't, you know, didn't come from, uh, the, you know, the salt of the earth. Uh, but I, I think what is troublingly different is the lack of what you put your finger out earlier, which is the organic connection to an organized working class, uh, that, you know, just, just having that kind of feedback loop of, like, having a working-class base that, you know, that, that, you're, um, that you're... Keeps following. you on
0: the straight and narrow. That keeps you on the... Straight, yeah. It keeps, it keeps you from devolving into issues that might be important issues, but in the grand scheme of things, are perhaps issues that are of a second-order importance, if you see what I mean. It's, to- yeah, it's, yeah
1: to- totally. I mean, look, 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 at, look at what's been... Um, look at how much left discourse uh, in, in the last couple of weeks has been about uh, you know like uh, you know Joe Rogan right like which was you know exactly. yeah like I, and I mean in that case I would argue it's actually even worse because there's an element of like sort of Condescending paternalism to like you know I don't I don't uh, I, I, I don't I don't think that you know I don't think I don't trust you people to you know to to you know to figure this stuff out but like, right you know and so that's even worse but like the bigger issue is like okay hold on why is it that like why is it that people are this like people who think of themselves as socialists are this worked up about this at all right it, like, Why why why
0: like at the end of the day. Like uh, you know, there are free speech issues related to Spotify, but it's more to do with the monopoly that Spotify has and its position in the market. The fight between Joe Rogan and these other uh, artists and creators—it's a kind of marketing fight, right? It's like I don't right. want my brand to be associated yeah, with yeah, a brand. Yeah, that yeah, is yeah. So, so it's like it's not even. It, it, it is free speech, but it's free speech one step removed. It's like it's like. Um, It's like, you know, imagine if you were studying, you know, uh, anti-Islamic sentiment in the United States, but you focused entirely on WWF wrestling (laughs) matches from the 1990s (laughs) that involved the Iron Sheikh and the way that the Iron Sheikh was treated. So Um. it is, it it is illustrative of something, but it's like very removed from a core issues. And, and, you know, we have the flip side, I would say. You have a kind of tailism and a kind of like dumb workerism, like, you have a minority of people on the left who get weak at the knees over the Canadian, um, oh, like geez, uh, truck it. drivers. They're like, "Oh, it's a proletarian revolution!" Blah blah blah. So, look, maybe those guys and their protests, they have some legitimate points, some points that the left should be uh, thinking sure. about, and things like that. And maybe you know some of the like hyperbolic discourse about them being fascist is like a little bit much. You know, maybe most of them aren't actual fucking fully blown fascists. Fair enough. But, like, let's be honest, like, this is, like, at best, this is the conservative w- version of BLM, a kind of heterogeneous populist movement that is destined to be funneled, its political energy is destined to be funneled into one of the established wings of political power. Just as BLM was fu- uh, funneled into the Democratic Party, so, too, this uh, protest will eventually be funneled into the Canadian Conservatives. Uh, but, you know, you get people who are like, oh, this is proletarian. Actually, it's like, bro, like most of these people own their own trucks. It's not like people are seizing lorries from logistics firms and
1: driving them to the border. It seems like it's mostly yeah, yeah. So like to- you get to- like... To- to- totally. And look, I will say I mean, my you know, my father-in-law you know, is retired now in the last few years, but he was a owner-operator truck driver for decades. I have a pretty good sense of what that's like. And, you know, it, it's not a... It's not a position of great luxury, right? I mean, you know, it's it's, sure. it's you know most it's pe- it's, pe- it's petty bourgeois position, though. I mean, if yeah, we're yeah, Marxist, yeah, yeah. be... no, 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 it, it is. I mean, my only point would be that I mean, I, I think that like, I think it's 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 the it's the pettiest edge of a petty bourgeois okay. position. So so I think that like there are people who do that who could go either way politically, sure. uh, you know. But but I also but I mean I, I take your point. I mean, like that does. The fact that the the fact that it's mostly people in that position um does tell you something about the political valence of it. And I also just think that like we should be able to like I, I, I hate the way the discourse about this stuff ends up getting polarized between like they're Nazis and they're actually good. Like that it's it's possible for something to be, you know, not great or maybe even more bad than good, but like also not be quite Nazis. Uh Exactly, exactly. And and it's also possible you know, one thing I would
0: I would agree with the kind of like the get on the Canadian bandwagon left type leftoid post left people is that leftists should be talking to these people. You know, leftists sure. should be go- going out and talking to. Them. But yeah, like I think I think I think ultimately, the fact that there are people who get completely hysterical about these people. And people who get completely weak at the knees at these people, and there's no middle ground, is actually an illustration of the fact that there is no organic link with the working class because we don't know how to conceptualize people like that because we live so fucking far removed from them.
1: You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's, it's no, no, people- no, 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 exactly. And, and like, this is the thing, like, and I struggle with this all the time in terms of my own commentary because it's like, okay, when, when some like, I mean, God, at least the Canadian thing is is about something real, even if it's, like, as you say, like, mostly lower middle class at its base and very much linked to astroturf reactionary politics, you know, but, like, at least there's something you can connect to there and think about what legitimate grievances might be exploited, whatever, but, like, stuff like, you know, whatever, you know... Joe Rogan, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Kyrie Compl- Irving, you know, the green Eminem, you know, like like just the, just the sort of like endless cycle of nonsense, you know, that, that, uh, that dominates, you know, that dominates uh, most of the stuff most of the time. Like, I really go like swing back and forth between trying to find ways of intervening in some of those things to actually extract points that matter from them and just, being like, okay, we should just like not feed into this, you know. We should just ignore this entirely. Yeah, it's, it's,
0: it's, it's, it's very difficult because, especially in America, and increasingly so in Britain, so much politics is driven by uh, uh, culture war stuff, which is not really about, you know, which either no, no, about no, or, yeah. or or is it, or, or is not what it says on the tin. Like, for example, yeah. the CRT shit, and then the uh, the CRT stuff. And the um, face masks in school stuff. It's not really about CRT and it's not really about face masks in schools. It's all about defunding public education because, you know, as soon as the CRT thing is solved, they pivot to the masks. As soon as the masks are solved, they pivot to the thing. And it's all about trying to, trying to like uh, defund public education. So, like, how do you not, how do you, how do you fight that? Because, you know, if you say, we shouldn't be doing CRT. We don't be spying on teachers teaching their, their right. classes. Then they go, oh, you don't like transparency in schools. You know what I mean? So, you know, some no, of these no, cultural wars no, are for sure.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and and that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, that you can sort of extract things that actually matter. Like, you know, like I think that the, um, you know, I, I think that in a couple of these cases we've mentioned, I think I think free speech like like I think it can at least be like a sort of teaching opportunity about like you know why the uh, left should care about free speech. Which I actually also think the fact that so much of the contemporary left doesn't care about free speech is a symptom of of its of its uh, downwardly mobile PMC base. You know because because if you come out of that sort of professional class background, I think you're much more likely. To have that instinct that the solution to everything is to like uh, go to the hall monitors and like get them to intervene for yeah, you. Yeah, it's it's,
0: it's freaking HR liberalism. That's what it is. Like the hegemonic idea of HR liberalism, which is uh, uh, which which has penetrated the left. And unfortunately, when it comes to left discourse, we we people end up getting funneled in two ways. Either you end up going like and becoming like Specter magazine, where you're like the woke hall monitor left. Or you end up like spiked, where you basically become <laughs> functional conservatives. So you have those two, you know, and like Jacobin has to, is always, you know, one of the props I'll give to Jacobin is they're always trying to navigate in between those two, you know, axes of uh, yeah, let's no, say, political degeneration. Absolutely. People give, out, people give Jacobin a lot of hate, but it's partly because Jacobin is not super coherent on that point. There's a lot of voices coming in there but i think i really want i want to actually ask you something sure about this free speech thing yeah and you're you're like more of an expert than me and you've engaged in it more one of the weirdest things that i come across is like people saying that when you say we should care about free speech they're, they're always like what's the problem there's no free street free speech problem but then they're the same people are complaining wanting to like kick Joe Rogan off the radio or whatever. It's like, I don't understand. Like, the discourse is very strange. Like, what is going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... So So one thing is that... I mean, the basic thing is what we already said, which is that I think uh, because there isn't really a left in the United States or in a very ambiguous, messy way, there's starting to be one, but there hasn't really been one you know, in the point, you know, in the sense that Adolf Reed means when he says things like, you know, there isn't a left, there's a thing that, in retrospect, we'll be able to point to, you know, if everything goes right and say that was the left, you know, by by which he means, you know, they're journalists, they're academics, they're, you know, 10 million podcasters, you know, but like, uh, you know, the, there isn't really the sort of um, movement, you know, with deep social roots that, you know, we'd think of as a left historically, and and I think that, um So, I think in that situation, people end up just, you know, I mean, unless they sort of overcorrect in like weird and embarrassing ways, like you're talking about, um, people end up uh, like tailing the liberal side of the culture wars uh, because that's what feels like real and pressing. And that's not always bad. I mean, if what people are fighting about is like, you know, should trans people have rights, then it's good to agree with liberals, but like, it, it does mean that people end up taking these positions just because they they want to like it feels like their team it feels like you know a way to like express their anger at the people they hate the most that just don't make any sense given the road principles so so I think um, a lot of a lot of times people on the left end up tailing the sort of dominant liberal line right now which mm-hmm. is just to take a completely libertarian view about free speech whereby uh whereby the only possible source of you know unfreedom is the government and like and and the and so there is no you know nothing else could be a free speech issue which by the way i mean you can see one way that that can already bite us in the ass with the crt thing because you know if you have that narrow libertarian definition of free speech okay what's the problem i mean you know you're, you're not uh you know, we're not regulating what people do in the private lives, right? You know, we're just talking about what happens in a publicly funded classroom. You know, right? Exactly. There'd be no free speech issue there either. You know, and whereas I think that clearly, if you're a socialist, it doesn't make any sense at all to um, to, to sort of um, dismiss a priori corporate censorship from counting as censorship. I mean, that that's that be that would be bizarrely self defeating, uh, and, and I think that you know, I think that you want to say, no, I mean, we, we want to have like more ways that more people can explore ideas that might make people angry, which above and beyond any principled argument you can make about that. I think that's just a matter of self-preservation. If you, um, if you have ideas that like go against the grain of your society, which definitionally the left does, right. You know, so, uh, so, so yeah, I, I think that's really crazy, but I think that like, and and maybe we can kind of end on this point, like, I guess, to me, the thing increasingly I see that in both the sort of dominant left discourse that we've just been talking about, but also in those sort of weird quarters of people who, you know, whatever, I mean, I think even most of them don't use the phrase, but, like, what's, you know, the people that people are talking about when they say post-left, you know, that that sort of... um, you know like like the kinds of people who are maybe sort of coming out either still call it, still think of themselves as marxists or used to think of themselves as marxists but who use leftist as a pejorative those people you know yeah. that like uh it, in both cases i think that the problem is it's a, it's a it's a kind of politics that only comes from discourse right like it, it's uh so so the starting point of it ends up being Okay, who hate, who do I hate most, or who annoys me most? And so, if you're, um, you know, if you're like a sort of typical like person who maybe you know likes the majority report, but like still might have a hammer and sickle in your uh, you know in your Twitter account, right? You know, if you're that leftist, uh, then the people that you hate the most are you know the conservatives. Republicans. Republicans, yeah. exactly, right? And if you're, you know, I don't know, like a mentally ill Australian podcaster, you know, that the people that you hate the most are, are the libs, right? You know, or, or, or like if you're in a different uh, country from you. Yeah. Yes. The libs who you have a very hazy idea of, cause you don't really know very much about American politics. Uh, and, uh, and so, and so whether it's like the libs or whether it's Republicans or whether it's like just people in the media you hate, I see a lot of that. I'm, I'm going to stop naming names at this point, uh, you know, even in the oblique way I've been doing, like what this, you know, if your starting point is that you want to own someone like that, that's, that that's, which like, I think I know I, yeah, most people don't think of it that way, even in their heads. Exactly. But like for so many of these people we're talking about, because they're entirely creatures of the discourse, they're creatures of like Twitter and sure. podcasts. So if like, you're, yeah. No, so, so, what, what I wanted
0: to jump in and just quickly say, if you're one of those people, and if you're listening, you know who you are, who come into the This Is Revolution uh, um, comments and start saying that we're all MSNBC sellouts because Sam Cedar single-handedly stopped, forced the vote, and thus Medicare <laughs> for all, right? if you're one of those people, that means you're coming from a position of discourse and not reality.
1: No, exactly. Like, I, and this is I mean, and you know, whatever. I mean, I get it from both ends. Uh, the, um, like, if I say something that like one group agrees with, I get people, you know, like on Twitter and chat, whatever, say, oh, why don't you say that to Sam Cedar?" Or if I say something that like is in the other direction, that like people in the other direction agree with, I'm like, oh, why don't you tell that to Glenn Greenwald? Like, I, I don't like this idea that everything has to be processed through, like pissing matches through media figure about media figures is is really indicative of of the source of the problem here. And if you are a creature of the discourse, and so you do end up seeing politics through the prism of how can I own whoever annoys me the most, mm-hmm. you, you end up just sort of blindly putting pluses where you know people you don't like put minuses and vice versa. Which, regardless of which people you're reacting to, you you know you end up just like. Embracing all these dumb shit, incoherent positions and you know understandings of reality, because like surely everybody gets at least a few things right, at least by accident, right? You know, or 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 like arrives at a place based on their like ridiculous starting points that like happens to coincide with what makes sense from yours. So like you know, I, I just I don't know. I mean, just like I would say, if you want to be a socialist, right? Like start with socialist values and start with a materialist understanding of the world and work forward from there. Don't like start from like whoever you fought, whoever you feel angriest when you see their tweets and, you know, and work backwards from there. Cause if you, if you do that, I mean, you're just going to be completely worthless. Exactly.
0: And go hang out with people more, you know, like since I came back to Britain, I'm listening. I'm, 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 I'm on Twitter less. I'm chilling out with the family. I'm getting some perspective on things, so uh, it's always good to have a little break to go see your buddies and get back, because COVID's done a number on everybody, I think, as well. I think it's heightened this whole uh, discourse obsession because, like, there's no re- there's no meeting in meet space anymore, so all we have is the discourse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, there's no... Um, and, yeah, people forget. Like, I, I think I I see this, like all the time with the rogue and stuff, uh, that like, I think people who spend all of their time sort of swimming in discourse, like just end up, end up truly forgetting that like most people, a don't have coherent political worldviews because you have to be slightly weird to have a coherent political worldview. Right. You know, most people don't spend enough time thinking about politics for that. And, and even people, like, who do spend, like, a bit of time, you know, thinking about politics, who, who aren't, you know, who aren't, like, professionally on Twitter, um, like, they just don't have the same, like, uh, the things that seem significant to you don't necessarily seem significant to them. Exactly. And, you know, and, like, also just, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I think if the... Um, I I guess I guess my you know if you want to do politics for the purpose of actually changing the world, um, I would just recommend you know and don't get me wrong. I mean, like I obviously enjoy like fancy theoretical debates and stuff, but like if that is the ultimate goal from your perspective, then um, then do you know think harder about why most people would care about whatever you're talking about exactly how, how you would explain it to them but anyway uh this was too much fun we uh end up going longer than than i was planning to but uh thank you so much gene gotta come back hey thank you so much Ben. you have a wonderful day and take care of yourself all right thanks you too man bye. bye all right we're gonna be back on tuesday at 5:30 est with cold jams cash should be a good time we'll see everybody then left his best